Hello, hello, and welcome to Psych Talk with Cher. I am back, and I just want everybody to know that this is a very, very important month. It is Suicide Prevention Month, and we've got a whole lineup of people, but I could not think of a better person to start the month with than one of the most impactful people that I know in my life, and we're going back to like school days, so I think it's like 2014. I don't want to really out myself, but there it is. And his name is Dr. Jonathan Singer. Um, he's an internationally recognized expert in youth suicide and social work technology. He is a professor of social work at La Jolla University Chicago, past president of the American Association of Suicidology, co-author of the best-selling text Suicide in Schools, a practitioner's guide to multi-level prevention, assessment, intervention, and post-intervention, co-lead of the Social Work Grand Challenge, Harness Technology for the Social Good, and founder and host of the award-winning Social Work Podcast, for which he has just been named Social Work Pioneer in 2023. He has chaired committees for the NASW and CSWE and served on youth advisory boards for Sandy Hook Promise, JED Foundation, Suicide Prevention Resource Center, and the National Suicide Prevention 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. He is the author of over 85 publications, and his research has been featured in national and international media outlets like NPR, BBC, Fox, Time, Magazine, and The Guardian. And that's the short version. <laughs> so welcome, <laughs> Dr. Singer. <laughs> How are you? Thank you, thank you Cher. Uh, it's an honor and a pleasure to be here with you today. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming. So, you know, this is, this is we, we've talked about this before. This seems to be, you know, our, our, I don't know, maybe every three to five years we get together and we talk about something like this because it's a very important subject for you. It's a very important subject for me. And every time we get together, I, I, I still, like, have answers. I work in high acuity, obviously. I deal with suicidation every day. Um, you know, you are an expert. And so Psych Talk really is about, you know, putting the experts in the right place to storytell so that everybody else can grab a nugget and apply it to their life. So why do you think in this day and age we still grapple with the stigma and the inability to talk about suicide? You know, I think suicide uh, is terrifying for most folks, except for those who are the most suicidal. I think there's this fear um, when you have a loved one who's suicidal that they're going to be gone, right? That you're going to lose them. And I think as a professional, um, you know, good professionals care about their clients. And then there's the added layer of legal liability. Um, the United States was, you know, uh, founded on the, the 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 principle of lawsuits, and um, you know that that continues to this day. And I think that when people who are struggling with suicidal thoughts um, get to that point where uh, it seems like they don't have control over them and the, the, the desire to die starts to take over. I think that can be really scary for them too. So, so I think that the idea of suicide can be scary. Um, and 
you know, whether or not we perpetuate um, a stigma related to suicide is, I think it's an interesting question. Yeah. For, you know, I am always surprised. Well, I've come up with my own, my own like answer to people. Like people, when I have clients and they're like, oh, I lay in the bed and I'm like, just take me. And I'm like, well, we're, 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 take you where? We're all going. You know, why are we, why are we rushing to the finish? Right. That's, that's the first thing. And the second thing is that people don't understand that suicide, suicidal ideation is like a maladaptive coping skill. You know, I mean, and for those who don't really understand what that means, it means like, I, it's not necessarily that I don't want to live. I just don't want to live like this. I don't want to live in this pain, this misery, and I don't know any way out. I can't see any way out. So that, that's an interesting thing that I, 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 because I talk about suicide every day. Like we, yeah. that, that's the one thing we don't skirt around. <laughs> like we talk about it. Well, and I think that you raise a really important point, which is that there's a difference between um, wanting to die and wanting the pain to be over or the, the chaos to be not chaotic or, or whatever. I mean, you know, when I was doing um, uh, work with children and adolescents in Austin, Texas, Back in the late 90s, I would have kids, uh, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, who would talk about wanting to kill themselves. And I came up with this little thing. We would literally write it out on a piece of paper. I would say, you know, there's a difference between uh, wanting to be happy and wanting to die. And then I would say, you know, if you're if you're sad, you're scared, you're lonely, you're upset, um, you're bored, and you you want to be happy, um, tell me, and then you know we can figure out ways for you to to be happy, right? To to not be bored, to not be scared, right? To be comforted, to be entertained, all those things. Um, and sometimes, right, depending on what's going on, that might mean if you tell an adult these things that they might take you to see a social worker. Uh, you might see a psychiatrist. Um, you might go somewhere, right, to, to help you with those things. I said, uh, but the focus will be on you uh, being happy. Um, but if you tell somebody that you want to die, then the focus will be on keeping you alive, mm. which is not the same as being happy. Um, you will still probably see a social worker, you might see a psychiatrist, you might still end up going somewhere, but at every point, um, the focus will be on keeping you alive rather than meeting those other needs. Um, Not because we don't care, but because that is a basic uh, responsibility of adults is to keep kids alive. And I was amazed that that little piece of, you know, what I came to think of as psychoeducation that there's uh, there's a real value in saying what you want, and and it can be hard, you know, if you're if you're a kid, to kind of hold these two things in your head at the same time. I, I get that, um, but being able to say, I'm really scared right now, and it's so scary that I think I want to kill myself. Right, there is a logic to that. Because then the the alternative when you're in a scary house or when you're in a scary situation is I'm really scared and I want my house to change. I want my parents to be different. I want the person that is 
victimizing me to not, not be like, how do you do that as a nine-year-old, right? So um, being able to sort of center it on yourself and take yourself out, you know, makes a lot of sense in terms of solving that problem. Um, and you mentioned maladaptive coping, right? Which in, in, in the, in this scenario that I'm bringing up, which is loosely based on a kid that I worked with, um, uh, you know, the, the adaptive coping would be to say, hey, look, this person is hurting me and I need you to get them out of my life. It takes a lot. Oh, for sure. Even for adults. For a kid. <laughs> for a kid to be, <laughs> that's exactly right. So like, so for anybody, let alone a kid to do that. And so, um, uh, you know, I think the, the, the idea of um, coping with whatever that is making it adaptive um, and figuring out how to do it without hurting yourself. I think that's one of the tasks that we have as social workers, as therapists. Yeah, it's so brilliant because really, as I listen to you with this formula and I think about what I say to, you know, I mean, obviously children are a vulnerable population. You yeah. know, they have very, they don't know how to label and verbalize. Sometimes they're too fearful to label and verbalize, you know, and, and the truth is like, oh God, if they only weren't here, right? Like someone else, yeah. <laughs> then, yeah. then they could be happy. It, it's the same thing for, for all of us. That really hasn't changed through age too much, you know, except for that you develop more of a frontal lobe and you also develop more resilience and you understand that there's going to be adversity throughout life and you learn healthier ways to cope and to survive some some of us you know keep our secrets until the very end but i mean you know it's very difficult and i think and as i hear you say it i'm like man this is exactly what i go through every single day and none of my clients are our kids they're all right. just grappling with you know just not understanding that once you learn the skill and you can apply the skill, first you got to tell somebody. Then once you learn the skill, right, because then you get help, you know, then you can start to create and design and define your life. And the funny part about that is, is that when I was in your class <laughs> at Temple, I remember, which was a clinical class, I remember sitting, it is the one thing about school I remember, I said that exact line. I said, I want to be able to design and define my life the way I want it to be, you know, as a clinician, as a whatever, you know, and as I look back at 56 years old, you know, I'm still doing that, right? Because obviously it's about the output and not the outcome, but okay. I am, I'm, I see how difficult it is for people to really understand that like, it's hard work. It's scary. You know, it, it's, yeah. it's scary to tell. It's hard work to change. It, it's, it's, and when you are a kid, and you are victimized repeatedly or even just in your mind, like, you know, the fear being just that, that, that mental slavery of like, it may happen again, or what if it happens or, or any of that stuff, you know, or not understanding what's happening, I think is like super challenging. Yeah, I think it is really challenging. <clears throat> I think it's particularly challenging for kids because kids have very little control over their life anyway. Um, if, if a kid has learned that when they ask for something, when they're saying, I need this, whether those are basic needs, right, in terms of like attachment needs, uh, comfort, love, safety, security, 
if, if they learn from their adults, you're not going to get this, then to be able to say uh, or to have the ability to say that I want you to do this and have the confidence that somebody's going to be able to do that. And then the confidence that if they do it, it'll solve the problem. That's a lot of logical leaps. And even if it were true, you know, like you said a couple minutes ago, there is a um, certain amount of cognitive development that has to happen, right? You have to move from your emotion brain into your prefrontal cortex and all of the sort of, you know, myelination that occurs during adolescence and the ability for those, those parts of the brains to communicate with each other. Um, you know, it doesn't really happen in eight year olds very easily, uh, let alone 28 year olds sometimes. I was so. going to, I was say, or, or, or 48 year olds. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it can take some time. And this is, so then, then, so then I'm always like, okay, well then, all right, then what do we got to do? Like, what do we got to do? Because like our world, right. Was like, Hey, don't come home until it's dark. Go ride your bike until dinner. Don't come home until it's dark. And I'm not saying that any of uh, these egregious acts that we're skirting around talking about right now are, didn't happen then. They certainly did. Um, you know, or, or children being in a vulnerable place or not being cared for and neglected, you know, definitely happen. What are we going to do? I mean, we're talking about a climate now in the world where kids are waiting in a line for breakfast and getting, you know, patted down before they get their, I don't, I don't even know what, what are they serving? I don't, I don't even know, maybe an egg, muff, egg McMuffin. I mean, what, what can we do to make it safer for kids so that they can see the other side of the wall. Yeah, well, you know, I think you raise a really important point, which is that uh, for a long time, decades, we've talked about suicide prevention as a medical issue, right? I mean, and you use the term, you know, uh, uh, kind of maladaptive um, which, you know, alludes to cognitive behavioral therapy. That was just to is, impress you. I'm just kidding. Yeah, and you did. I was very <laughs> impressed. But, you know, like, um, you know, we, we, we think about these things from uh, a, a clinical, a medical perspective, but there's been increasing research into and focus on the structural level issues that contribute to suicide risk. And, you know, I really believe that if we want a world where people feel like their lives are worth living, we can't have a society that says that some lives are worth more than others. And that is, has everything to do with what's the experience that the kid has as they're walking to school, when they're getting, you know, walking through the metal detectors, what kind of food they're having, what's their neighborhood like, what do they hear on TV, what's the curriculum in the school, right? There are all these structural issues that are as much a part of suicide prevention as any medication, and there's no medication that's been shown to be effective in preventing suicide, um, or psychotherapies, right, which there are some effective psychotherapies for reducing suicide ideation and attempt. Um, but being able to address these structural level um, issues is suicide prevention. It is suicide prevention because it helps people to have um, worlds worth living in, right, um, where they can build a life worth having. And I think that, you know, this is one of the big challenges that we have in the field of suicidology is to help make that shift in terms of thinking. 
No question. I mean, every time you say it, and I think of Lineham because, you know, I'm, I'm DBT girl yeah. all the way. What's well, her line? So. Yeah, I, for sure. But, you know, but think about that. I mean, you know, there's a delta, right? So, like, if this is what, you know, is the goal, and then there's 17 steps to get there, and there's nobody there to teach, you know, a child or an adolescent how to get to the next step, right, or the next rung on the ladder, or whatever metaphor you want to use. It's just that I just find that it's it's really difficult for people to understand that a lot of it is choice. And so, you know, if we start to teach choice maybe earlier on, maybe then, you know, we have a shot at, you know, people understanding that you're always going to have a choice. There might be two sh really shitty choices, like, you know what I mean? But, like, you can choose, and then you can move into action. And I think that's kind of, like, I, I don't know I don't know how to thread that needle for that, for that youth, you know? I mean, they have so much going on today as it is that it's, like... I mean, they don't understand the finality of their actions. You know, everybody's walking around, you know, with, with a gun. I mean, you know, there's fentanyl all, all over the streets. Like, this is just not the world that I thought I would be alive to see for sure. But, um, you know, I also... Well, I mean... Go ahead. I mean, when you and I were, you know, uh, kids, uh, you know, there we, we sort of were in adolescence during the AIDS epidemic. Then there was, uh, and before that even, it was the Cold War, right? So it was the fear of a nuclear war and everybody dying, right? So, you know, we, we, we were in adolescence during a time where there were these very real threats to um, our, our lives, our well-being. Um, you know, and then we think about 2001, Right. There was this, the, the, you know, the first time there was this attack on American soil. Mm -hmm. Right. So those kids kind of experienced that. If you look at 2008, there was the collapse of the, you know, um, uh, there was the financial, there was the Great Recession. Um, uh, then you look at COVID. Right. So the, at various certain points, there are these things that happen. And when we think about kids looking to the adults in the room, to uh, solve the problem. I think kids these days, in part because uh, social media has an amplifying effect, um, you know, they're seeing things like the climate crisis. Um, and, and some kids literally just look outside and they see the climate crisis, but, you know, they, they hear about it, they read about it. And um, um, uh, there's been uh, there's been research that's been published over the last couple of years. I've talked to my colleagues. I'm sure you've heard of it too, is that kids are coming in and when talked, when asked about why you want to die, why do you want to kill yourself? They'll bring up the climate crisis. There is this sense that there's not really a world that I'm going to be able to grow up in into. Yeah. And when you're, 14, 15, 16, right? Um, that's that's enough. <laughs> it's yeah. like, why should I stick around? There, yeah, there's this doom and and like hopelessness and you know, like you know, like we were always like, just get in the water and you can change the tide, or like you know, work within the box, or I mean, I can I can bat, rattle off probably fifty that kept me going, but you know. The truth is, is that, you know, I look at my nephews and I'm like, man, like, I, I don't, I don't, I don't even see it. Like, I don't see it. I mean, I see the value of life. Don't get me wrong. Like, as long as you have breath, you have value. 
that that's just my opinion. But, you know, I can see his skew too, and his paradigm is like, eh, well, you know, I'm just going to make T-shirts and, like, you know, we'll see what happens kind of thing. <laughs> because, yeah. because who knows, you know? Right. And, and, and COVID being a really prime example because you're upfront and, and personal to your, maybe your parent dying in front of you or you having to be the adult, you know, and, 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 and not having a world to trust. There's no, there's no safe place anymore, yeah. anywhere. So it yeah. kind of like took it from like, oh, there's no safe place in this house to like, there's no safe world. So that's, that's pretty big. It, it, it is big. And I think that, you know, one of the things that you're um, kind of the, the threading the needle is that, you know, for any one kid, it might be that uh, my home environment is unsafe. Um uh, for any other, for, for another kid, it might be, well, I have, I have a loving family. I have enough to eat. Structurally, things are fine, you know, in terms of uh, basic needs. But why would I want to stick around, right? Um, climate crisis, uh, COVID, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, not to mention the, the uh, uh, sort of the, 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 the white supremacy and, and racism, um, the anti-LGBTQ plus um, thread that is running through lots of our state legislatures, um, um, <clears throat> essentially trying to legislate out people's existence. I mean, it's, uh, it is, it's a scary time. And yet, I also agree with you that as, a, as adults and as professionals, we have a responsibility um, uh, to quote Jesse Jackson, to keep hope alive, right? We, that, that is our, um, that is, that is an ethical duty. When, when somebody comes in to see us, um, uh, and they can't see a value in their going on, that's our job. We need to see, uh, a reason for them to stick around, right? It's just like when a couple comes in for therapy and they're like, we don't really, think this relationship is going to last. We're, we're not rooting for the relationship. The couples therapist, part of their job is to root for the relationship, right? So I do think that we have a job to do as adults in keeping that hope alive. So, okay. So where do, where do we, where, where do we start? Where's, where's the sign up sheet? You have it. <laughs> I'm just saying like, this is what I mean. Like, you know, this month in particular, you know, it's to get, you know, first, you know, because I'm like you, it's like the attention span of, 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 you know, kids today, you know, that's why I've been blogging for a long time. It's six to 900 words, right? Now it's like, okay, podcast, like if maybe 40 minutes, if it's really good, you know, I mean, but Insta and I mean, it, the word is the word, Insta. So there, there yep. it is. I want to be instantaneously, you know, gratified. I want instantaneous info. I want to feel better about myself instantaneously. And sure. at the same time, all I'm doing is dealing with comparison and having, you know, media thrown at me that's, you know, doing everything but encouraging and empowering me to be my right. authentic self. And so, you know, you have so many mixed messages, you know, for our youth that it's 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 really like okay just like let's throw a dart and start somewhere and so i i, I want a more i want a more organized plan <laughs> i want you to come up with a syllabus where, yep. where where can we start 
Well, I mean, I think that uh, we can start with the syllabi, right? I think that having school curricula, because kids spend an inordinate amount of time in school, right? Um, if you're in elementary school, middle school, high school, having curricula that is um, affirming of who you are, whether that's by race, gender identity, sexual orientation, language, um, you know, region, those sorts of things. Um, affirming curricula is really important. We know that when schools have um, GSAs, which used to be called Gay-Straight Alliances, it's been renamed Genders and Sexualities Alliances. Uh, when schools have those, uh, including middle schools as well as high schools, um, there is a reduction in the number of kids who report uh, having thoughts of suicide, right? Uh, and, and the idea, the thought is that that makes, that these, these, these clubs um, make the schools more affirming, right? Uh, it, it says you, you have value. Um, I think in communities, there, there are lots of things that we can do. One is that parents can talk to each other about things like suicide, um, as well as some of the other associated things, right? Eating disorders, right? Eating disorders has, has amongst the highest rate of suicide. Um, I mean, it is slow suicide. <laughs> it, right. Well, so there's that idea, like, yeah. are you slowly dying? Are you slowly killing yourself? And, and sort of beyond what an eating disorder will do to a body, and specifically I'm thinking sort of the restricting ones like anorexia nervosa, mm -hmm. um, um, beyond what that does to the body... Within that, um, suicide rates are incredibly high, like people intentionally taking that, that action to end their life. Um, and so parents can, um, can create their own communities of support and say, hey, um, you know, my kid's 11, 12, 13, and I know that they're stumbling into porn, uh, you know, when they're doing searches for Taylor Swift, there'll be some random video that pops up and it can be disturbing. I know that they're um, looking for this and then ads for firearms are going to pop up. I know, uh, you know, this influencer, uh, you know, just stepped away because they're being treated for an eating disorder. And I don't know what sort of messages they were sending on their, on their posts. Can we talk about this, right? Figuring out what your kids' parents are thinking in terms of, is it okay to talk about suicide? Will I, do I as a parent think that it's um, my place to tell another parent? If my kid says, you know, so-and-so mentioned this, right? Um, how do you set up that community of support? I think that is an incredibly hopeful thing because as parents, we can feel very isolated and we can feel very alone because the time that we're feeling most confused about what to do is rarely the time that we're like, hey, I'm going to reach out to a bunch of people and be like, I might have screwed up in a really big way, right? So building that community of support is really important as well. Yeah, I, 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 I couldn't agree more. As a matter of fact, I think, I mean, well, parent management training, like 101, <laughs> Like, that whole book needs to be revised. And there is a book, actually. But you know what I mean? Like, it really does. And, you know, because we have so many other things to consider and people, parents not really understanding, like, what, like, here, it's just a perfect word, like, dysphoria, right? Like, people not, mm -hmm. parents not understanding what that word even means and right. how much suffering that child can be enduring because of that feeling Right. It, it's just 
there has to be community. I remember I couldn't even skip school and go to the McDonald's without, you know, Mrs. Rosenberg telling on me. And that was my next door neighbor. You know, I haven't seen a community right. like that in a really, really long time, you know, because everybody's working, you know, we're, we're, we're too, you know, too busy, got to work, don't have time. And we're scared. We're, yeah. You know, it's a fear-based society. We're scared. Nobody wants to talk about top surgery. No one wants to talk about, oh, got to move this state because you're not going to be able to get your hormones. And, and guess what? Nobody wants to talk about rolling back, you know, <laughs> you know my privilege to an abortion <laughs> that, I, that, that I got however many years ago. Nobody right. wants to talk about any of this stuff. So, you know, community mobilization and all this stuff, it's like who's, who's doing it? Who's, who's doing it? Who, where should it come? Should it come from, from churches, synagogues? Should it come from parent groups? Should it come from the school? I mean, we don't really even have guidance counselors in schools anymore. We have bus duty slash guidance counselors slash social workers slash, you know, it's right. just, you know, there's so much in, in the system that deprives us from doing things that could change, you know, life for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you have uh, this multi-pronged approach, right, meaning that you have um, uh, uh, kids who are in schools hearing things that say you matter, when you have parents who are building their own communities of support, um, and you have uh, legislation that is actively working against that, it's tough, right? That's why you know, think globally, act locally is is a really powerful message. Um, if we want our kids in the United States to uh, feel like their lives matter, then, uh, it, you know, it has to start locally. And I feel like people um, have more control over that, right? So who's on your local school board? Um, who, uh, um, what are the policies in your school um, when there is some sort of tragedy or disaster, do they have a, a community of, of partners already set up? Does that include faith communities? What do those faith communities stand for? Um, there are lots of faith leaders that I know that uh, are incredibly progressive. And that's my bias, right? Um, uh, there might be some people who are like, well, I don't want a progressive faith leader, but I want a faith leader who says, um, uh, you know, uh, like in my synagogue, uh, that they will go and they will um, change the word, uh, the way that they talk about bar and bat mitzvahs uh, at, at Beth Emmet in Evanston. They're now called Kabbalat mitzvah. It's not that um, any one kid um, cannot refer to themselves as bar or bat mitzvah, but the, 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 the celebration is called kabbalat mitzvah, right? It's sort of a gender inclusive term. And, and taking that stance, I think, is really important structurally. And so understanding what's going on with that in the community is, is incredibly powerful as a mental health professional, as a parent, as somebody who's looking to change what's going on in your local area. Yeah. Okay. That sounds, I mean, amazing. So globally, locally and then it's really i mean it's 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 listen for social workers it's always i think been the same thing right like you got to get your hands dirty you, you just yeah. you just got to get your hands dirty it's really nice to sit in an office and, and you know 
because <laughs> I'm there. It's really yeah. nice to sit in an office and, and, and talk about all this stuff, but you then have to get up and you got to get out and you got to really walk your talk and you've got to, to explain things. And, and, that's, and that's the interesting part is that I think there's just such a lack of psychoeducation that, you know, that we call it. But, like, just education in general. People are so confused. I mean, God, I don't even know what to eat anymore, let alone, like, you know, how many letters there are. You know, like, you know, and, and, and neither does anybody else. Like, you know, so it's like they have us all so twisted right now, the they, you know, the big they mean they. Yeah. But, I mean, they, every, I think that we're all struggling to kind of find this middle path and to understand that, you know, it's going to be us who's going to make the difference. And I always say, like, if you want to change the tide, you got to get in the water. So that's just the way it is. You got you got to move it. Yeah. And, well, I think there's some other things that, that need to happen structurally uh, that we can't control. So, for example, um, you know, one of the uh, one of the things that I found amazing and, and really uh, kind of hopeful during the pandemic was that you could go online and find data for, um, you know, what the positivity rate for COVID was in these little tiny towns anywhere in the United States, right? Um, public health folks did a great job of gathering data and making that publicly available. Now, I realize as time went on, there was some legislative pushback, blah, 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 but um, there was real-time data, and when there's real-time data, it means that the professionals and and folks who are not professionals but live in the community can make decisions based on the information rather than saying, well, we don't know what's happening, but what I think is happening is this. Um, when it comes to suicide, we don't have real-time data. Um, the provisional numbers for 2022 just came out from the CDC for suicide. And when I say provisional, what I mean is that um, <clears throat> they're not the final numbers. They will change, but um, hopefully not very much. And what they reported was that in 2022 was uh, one of the highest um, years for suicide um, since they've started recording um, these data. Uh, almost 50,000 Americans died by suicide. In 2020, it was around 45,000, right? So it's an additional 5,000 people who died by suicide this year compared to a couple years ago. Um, but when you dig into the data, there was something else that was really interesting, is that the number of youth suicide deaths, and when I say youth, I mean, you know, 10 to 14, 15 to 19, and then 20 to 24, um, those numbers declined. So we've been talking for the last year about how youth suicide is up. Well, now it's it's down again. It was down in 2022, yeah, provisional, but it was down. And if we don't have real-time data, it's really hard for us to know why. What is it that is contributing to an increase in suicide deaths? And what's in, what's contributing to a decrease in suicide deaths? You and I doing our work, right, going to the hospital or going to a, a clinic or outpatient or seeing clients in our therapy office, wh whatever it is that we're doing, <clears throat> we can address that one person in front of us or the family. We can participate in community projects. But if we don't have data, 
about what's happening in terms of suicide risk, real-time data, it's really hard for us to make policy decisions, programmatic decisions that can address things as they're happening. Yeah, It's a tough nut to crack, but I do think that it is one of these things that um, is incredibly valuable for people to push for and to say, we need to fund this, we need to have it be actionable, because then we will be able to make these micro course corrections, um, which hopefully will reduce um, suicide. Yeah, I think that's I think that's brilliant, actually, and true. And and then the only other thing that, you know, w that really just comes up a lot and it doesn't matter age, but it's, you know, it's the survivors, right? The, right. the, the, the miss the, you know, I don't understand, you know, where's the note, like, you know, all, all of that. That's right. And so what I have found just in the last, I think, year for me I've been around quite quite we've had quite a few losses but I mean yeah. it's been for the parents for the families for the children the survivors is that instead of you know quickly going to the oh, how selfish of them right you know like oh, god that's just so selfish I mean he had a 13 year old kid how could he do that right to maybe celebrate the, their life and understand that they have just lost an incredible, exhausting battle that they've been fighting for, we don't even know how long, really. Yeah. So yeah. You know, there's some grace that I think is due there you know, to people. We don't really know what people are going through. People are only known as much as they want to be known. And right. I think that also with real data, it gives you a chance to, you know, get out and reach more people, you know, a one to many model. And then also, you know, have more people be vulnerable about it because we're talking about it more and differently and it's everywhere. And it's not just about like, you know, hey, don't do it, like kind of yeah. thing, you know? Yeah. Well, and I think that, um, you know, if, if suicide prevention had a bumper sticker, uh, for a long time, it would be suicide is a preventable public health problem. And, uh, you know, I think there's some value in talking about suicide prevention. Um, but the minute somebody dies, the message has to change, right? Because if you talk about suicide is preventable and somebody's just lost their, their parent or their partner or their child, then there's an implication that, well, you didn't prevent their suicide. So right. you're somehow culpable. You're, you're part of this. And what we need to do is we need to focus, as you said, on, on their, their grief, their sadness, their loss, acknowledging that this person who died um, might have been struggling for a long time and, and maybe in silence, right? Yeah. Um, so that we can focus our attention on supporting the person um, who has this huge hole in their life now. And the work of Julie Serrell, who's a, a professor of social work um, at University of Kentucky, she did research that suggested that, you know, there are 135 people who are uh, seriously bereaved, um, significantly bereaved by um, uh, uh, each suicide loss, right? So if we think about there being 50,000 suicide deaths in 2022, multiply that by 135, and you get a number of you know, that number of people are newly bereaved by suicide in 2022, um, which means that we got a lot of grief work to do. A hundred percent. And that, that I think, 
you know, as a closing message is, 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 is something that I'm really, I'm working on now. I'm doing a lot of grief and bereavement work. I'm doing a lot of like reducing shame. Right. And, 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 and just kind of, cause it's also complicated grief. You know, I mean, some yeah. people just never mourn anything. <laughs> There's just no time or they don't think they deserve to, but I'm, you know, the message is like, Hey, listen, as much as you want to, you can't keep someone alive. Like you just, it, you just can't. I mean, you can try and you can work at it and you, you hope for it, you know, but at the end, if someone has that loss, you know, there has to be a shift, you know, to where it's not, there's the blame and the shame and the guilt is, is kind of, it's like kind of transformed because it will allow them to grieve and then allow them to take their story and then, you know, do something about it with somebody else or share it with somebody else. So it's, yeah. it's, I think that's, that's also a big piece. So yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I mean, I think that it can be incredibly powerful to find community um, with others who have lost, who have experienced loss um, and finding the right community is important. Um, and, uh, I, I think that it can be really hard for somebody who's lost somebody to suicide because of the discrimination that exists, um, around suicide that, that persists, uh, to be able to walk into a room, whether it's virtual or in person and, uh, and for everybody to already know that you're there because somebody that you loved died by suicide, that in and of itself can be healing. But then to be able to say things like, um, I know that there is no why, but I keep asking myself, why? What did I miss? How could I have missed this, right? I did everything that the professionals said, and yet it still happened. Why, right? Being able to um, be in a space where you are being uh, loved and upheld and supported is therapeutic, and being able to create those spaces, I think is important, whether you're a kid who's lost a parent to suicide, a parent who's lost a kid, a partner. Um, and, and so I do think that those are really, really important spaces for us to be able to um, uh, uh, support and, and, and have, especially as we're looking at um, rising suicide rates generally. So lots of work to do still, never ends. <laughs> I cannot thank you enough for joining. Um, I, honestly, I say it all the time. It's like you're my celebrity crush. <laughs> never, never had one, but 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 you're it. So you know, and and I I, I I I I really appreciate it because I think that you know it's hard for people to just talk. It's hard for people to just talk, and that's never been hard for you. And that's one of the things I admire most about you. And that's one of the things that I try and emulate the most about you because I, I, I'm okay with being transparent and I'm okay. I'm, I can hold the space. Like I can, I, can, I can hold it. And I want everybody to know that it's okay to talk about it and that it's better to talk about it than it is you know, to take that secret or any secret, you know, keep it tucked away. It's just, it's, it's, it's okay. There's people out there that can help share 
that that space with you and hold you there. So I can't thank you enough for 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 being here. I am going to make sure all of the resources are posted. There will be links. It'll be on YouTube. Whenever Christian gets around to doing whatever he does, you know, sends it out to like a million gajillion places. Where where do we go again? I don't know. Spotify, Tell Apple Podcasts, YouTube. Most places you watch your podcast. Okay. For, for, or listen, right? Listen, <laughs> so, okay. watch, view. And then Consume. there's yep. there's, you know, at, and then I have an Insta which is Psych Talk with Cher. So that has, you know, that is the new incarnation. Every time I think it's my last one, I'm like, yep, not yet. <laughs> so <laughs> here we are. And we are. I thank you and I wish you well and I wish the family well. And I hope to see you again. I hope you'll come on again and again and again and again because you've always got, got so many great nuggets to share. Happy to come on again. Thank you so much for having me, Cher. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And I'll, I'll send you everything you need. Okay, so All anything right. you need, all right? Wonderful. All right, take care. Okay, all right, all right. bye. Bye-bye.